Welcome to the Ongoing Transformation, a podcast from Issues in Science and Technology. Issues is a quarterly journal published by the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, and by Arizona State University. My name is Megan Nicholson, and I'm a senior editor at Issues. This is the second installment of our Science Policy IRL series, where we're pulling back the curtain to learn more about the community of people involved in making science policy happen by interviewing real people about their everyday experiences in the field. If you missed the first episode, please check it out below. In this episode, I'm joined by Aperva Dave, the director of the Climate Security Roundtable at the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. The fiscal year 2021 National Defense Authorization Act directed the National Academies to create a roundtable on climate security to convene discussions of experts in support of the U.S. intelligence community and the federal science community, with the goal of understanding and anticipating climate-related risks to U.S. national security interests. Aperva's work operates at the intersection of science, security, and society. First, I ask Aperva about his definition of science policy and how he does it in his job, and then I ask about how he found his way into the field. Aperva, it's wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much for calling in today. Yeah, thanks, Megan. I'm glad to be here. So we're going to open with a pretty big question for you. Can you tell me how you define science policy? I think there's a number of ways you can approach this question. Maybe one way to approach it is that there's an academic or kind of theoretical approach to the question. And then there's one that's more about the practice um, or practical definitions of science policy. And then I think there's also, for each of us in the space, there's a personal definition, right? So I would say like in its most theoretical or abstract sense, it's kind of science policy is the practice of applying understandings of the world arrived at through science or um, the application of scientific methodologies themselves to questions about um, the issues and the challenges that face you know people in society. Um, and that's like a very broad question. But in more practical terms, I think the distinction that I've encountered a lot in the science policy space is one between policy for science and science for policy. So as like a young-ish science policy fellow, when I got to DC, that was kind of a distinction that people talked about and which made a lot of sense to me because there were fellows that were going into positions where they were talking about the ways in which science itself is conducted. Um, who gets to do science, how it's done, how it's supported, and the processes and the structures that we have in place to kind of apply it, you know, to other issues. But then there was a whole other set of fellows, and I was in that group, that were really working on issues um, and challenges that obviously face broader society, but which had really strong science and technology components to them or dimensions to them. And so for which the development of policy solutions required scientific knowledge. And so I think that distinction is kind of a practical one and it makes a lot of sense. And then I guess a personal definition of science policy is really, uh, for me, I think it's a space in which people who have maybe dedicated their lives to science or people who have chosen to go down the path of, you know, science as a vocation can find ways to be useful and to connect their work and the ways in which they see the world to broader sets of problems and to connect to other people and other parts of society. So it's literally, I think um, for me at least, it's a way 
of trying to be useful and finding some kind of broader value for all the things that I developed, I guess, through my education and training. So as director of the Climate Security Roundtable of the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine, you are convening experts from the national security and the climate science community and from lots of other disciplines that are important to understanding the intersection of those subjects. So as we're talking about, you know, who gets to do science, how it gets done, I'm hoping you can speak a bit about how the roundtable works and what, you know, it is meant to accomplish in that space. Yeah, absolutely. So I think maybe going back to my earlier definitions, the climate security roundtable that's convened by the National Academies, it's an example of science being conducted or translated for policy issues in which there's a strong component of kind of scientific and technical understanding. The roundtable is a group of volunteer experts drawn from um, many different sectors in society, academia, the private sector, civil society, And these volunteers convene um, together with federal officials from the intelligence community and the national security space, as well as the federal civil science agencies, to engage in a persistent way um, in discussions around various topics related to climate change and the way that it intersects with national security interests. And I would say that, you know, each one of the volunteer experts that we have, as well as the, the federal scientists that are part of the roundtable, um, each bring some level of you know, technical expertise in climate science or the scientific investigation of the impacts of climate change and variability. And they bring their own particular kind of disciplinary understandings or focuses to a discussion that's supposed to be very synthetic and I think paint a big picture of kind of the comprehensive set of interactions between Um, again, like change in variability in the climate system and U.S. national security interests. Can you describe what a typical day working in science policy looks like for you? We were, you know, created by the U.S. Congress, which directed the National Academies to work with the Office of the Director of National Intelligence to establish this roundtable, to populate it with members, and then to meet at least four times a year for its full meetings, and then also to convene workshops on different topic areas at least twice a year. So generally we meet quarterly and two of those quarterly meetings have workshops attached to them. And, you know, those meetings require a ton of, you know, organization and prep work and then, you know, everything from logistics to kind of working with planning committees to kind of design the agenda, a lot of consultation with stakeholders to understand what issues are of importance to the audiences that we're trying to reach. And then after the fact, you know, just writing the summaries and writing the reports and kind of creating the value add products that kind of survive the meetings and are shared with our audiences. Sometimes that involves a lot of, you know, administrative stuff. But one thing that I don't think I understood very clearly when I started in the science policy space is that roles like the one I'm inhabiting of, you know, essentially being like a facilitator and a coordinator and somebody who's really bridging the gap between different communities is that there's a tremendous amount of substantive power that's held by people who are helping to design agendas and convening people and facilitating conversations. Um, and this kind of soft power is one that's exercised in kind of bringing people together, really understanding that everybody's coming to the table with different equities, different perspectives, and that there's a responsibility to make sure that they have a place where they can sit down, be heard, to have a conversation facilitated in a way that everybody gets a chance 
um, to develop a shared understanding of what the group is trying to do and then a chance to contribute from their own perspectives. You're working very, very closely with the experts before and during and after the roundtables activities to kind of direct them and make sense and have, have them hold together, especially over, you know, we're a roundtable that is going to be meeting for five years. There's also kind of this longer term, persistent kind of intellectual component to the work because you're thinking about the ways in which the conversations that you're convening um, are building on each other and, and kind of contributing towards like the statement of the task for the roundtable and kind of feeding the needs of the audience. So everything that I do on a day-to-day basis, even if it's sending an email to schedule a meeting, you know, to something much more profound, you know, um, which like doing an analysis or synthesis after these discussions, all of it is threaded through with kind of these considerations about, well, how do I pull all these parts together? How do I make sense of them? How do I balance the different perspectives and equities that were present, you know, on the roundtable and in these discussions? It sounds like it's a practice every day of these kind of larger goals of the roundtable. And I want to ask you if you could talk a little bit about the sort of higher level intellectual work that you mentioned. How are those priorities for the roundtable developed? The roundtable, again, it's a, it's a creation of Congress. Our national security policy and our high level national security strategy documents within the federal government have recognized, you know, environmental change um, and specifically climate change as key elements of national security thinking for decades now. I think the first time that climate change made its appearance in national security strategy language was, was 1991. And in the same way that earth system science has evolved and become more integrative and people kind of understand that climate is part of an integrated planetary system, in the same way that all of that scientific understanding has evolved over the past few decades, the policy approaches and the solution space for climate and other environmental change challenges has also become more integrative. And so if you look at the national security strategy language and you look at the ways in which governments and their partners in civil society and private sector and academia have approached these issues, they have progressively become kind of more integrative and expansive. So if you look at the policy area over the last few years, certainly you start to see climate change and environmental change and the related security issues show up in other parts of government and most salient to this conversation, I guess, is that it has started to show up in our National Defense Authorization Acts, which are these big, you know, kind of must pass pieces of legislation that come out every year and which increasingly have included, you know, specific provisions that are related to like climate change and environmental change. So with all of that said, like in 2020, the National Defense Authorization Act included a provision for the creation of a federal interagency Climate Security Advisory Council, or CSAC, we call it the CSAC. And the CSAC was a platform that convened a few principles from the national security community, from the intelligence agencies, and other federal officials from our science agencies. Um, And the purpose of that council is to increase and strengthen the coordination and communication between those two communities and the federal government. And then the next year, the Congress created the roundtable, which was meant to give these federal officials in the CSAC an opportunity to engage climate science and climate impacts expertise outside of government. And so that's kind of the purpose of the roundtable. I think that is a really good segue to thinking about the importance of definitions. So when you're convening this really cross-disciplinary group, I can imagine that establishing like clear definitions of what you're discussing becomes really important. And it seems to me you know, that people could interpret climate security in a lot of different ways. And I feel like it has been interpreted 
in different historical contexts. So I think that would also impact approaches to thinking about the risk and mitigation strategies, different recommendations. So I'm just wondering, how does the roundtable define climate security and how does that definition impact your scope of work? Climate security means a lot of things to a lot of different people, and it really changes depending on the context of the conversation that you're having. One thing I think that's important to understand is that there's actually no single definition in U.S. law of national security. And there are multiple places where national security shows up, you know, in statutes, but there isn't actually a single definition for national security. And again, it is also highly contextual. But generally speaking, notions of national security involve, you know, fundamental ideas about the integrity of the United States and our our borders, our critical infrastructure and institutions and processes and the health and well-being of our people, right? And then that obviously extends to our like our allies and partners. So I would say that from a practical standpoint, there are three different bins that I encounter when I am talking about climate security or reading about it or hearing about it. Um, And the first one generally tends to be the ways in which climate change is impacting the U.S. homeland and specifically, you know, our critical infrastructure, the central policies and processes and structures that define American life, our economic and social and cultural and political um, life. And then also just the health and the well-being of Americans living in the homeland. So that's kind of one bin. And then another bin really involves our national defense posture. And so the ways in which climate and environmental change impact our ability to defend ourselves, right? Um, And so that encompasses critical military installations, the logistics and acquisition practices and processes of the U.S. military, the opportunities to train military personnel, as well as kind of the operational constraints that, you know, climate and environmental change place on our military. And then obviously there's also kind of a strategic component and that kind of bleeds into the operating environment or the kind of geostrategic environment in which the military is eventually going to be operating in. There's that third bin, which really focuses on um, the ways in which the climate impacts occurring overseas can eventually impinge on U.S. national interests through, you know, the various ways in which our country is linked to the rest of the world. So that can be, you know, our economic and trade linkages. It can be through, you know, the impacts on our allies and partners. It can be through impacts on the investments that we make in international development, the the supply chains, lines of, you know, financial networks, communication networks, trade and supply networks, transportation, you know, all of these ways in which climate signals can propagate back and impinge on, on our interests. My roundtable that I work on is primarily in that third bin. You know, we don't really focus on the U.S. homeland. We're not really talking too much about our national defense posture. What we do spend a lot of time talking about is what's happening overseas, what's happening to our globally interconnected world, and how might these linkages produce pathways for climate-related security risks that are eventually going to hurt U.S. interests. Okay, I feel like I understand the roundtable and what it does a little bit better now. And I want to ask you more about what your path was to this role. So um, I'm hoping that you can share a little bit about your background and what led you to this job. Yeah, sure. I also think it's really important to acknowledge that like a lot of times when you talk to people in science, particularly in science, and I, I think not that I listen to a lot of science podcasts or anything, but I think the one thing I always hear again and again and again is like, oh, I was, a, you know, I was always interested in science and I always would do experiments in my bedroom or I was like passionate about this or that, you know, 
And I think there's this conception that anybody who ends up in the sciences or anybody who ends up being like a professional and making a career out of these things was just like born to be a scientist or that, you know, they were like a little Einstein or prodigy, like from the get go. And the reality is, I think that that's one pathway. And I really, I feel really happy for people who knew exactly what they wanted to study and had like a passion and a path and they followed it and they worked at a high level and were successful all the way through, you know, but the reality is, is that not everybody's like that. And so my path is actually pretty convoluted because I was interested in science as a kid. Like that's definitely the area, an area that I loved and was interested in, but I absolutely wasn't like this passionate, diligent student or little scholar. And a lot of my career path has just been a lot of misses and a lot of kind of um, failures and setbacks and kind of um, personal growth that's um, that's happened um, as a result of failures and kind of not and false starts and things like that. So I would say, you know, I'm 51 right now and I actually got to D.C. Um, at the age of 41. So I'm like 10 years into my career, actually, and pretty much like 15 to 20 years older than everybody else at my career stage. And it's because I spent like the first half of my life just doing completely other things. So I was a student for way longer than I should have been. I wasn't very serious. I worked as like a fitness trainer at a gym. I was a lab tech. I was a high school science teacher for for years. And before I eventually went back to um, to graduate school, like in my 30s. So I, I wouldn't say that it was like a path of like unmitigated like success or like achievement. In fact, it was probably a lot of like getting lost and then figuring out. And I would probably say that um, if I could do it all over again, there's absolutely, you know, different paths that I would take. And I probably might not have ended up in the same spot. But um, I think that kind of maturity and the understanding of the realization of like your talents and like putting it all together doesn't always happen early on. And it doesn't always happen steadily. And for me, it happened like quite late in life, actually. Sometimes getting lost and then finding your way out is a learning experience in itself. Can I ask what brought you to DC originally? Yeah, sure. I finished my PhD at Duke. Um, I was an oceanographer. I worked for two and a half years. I taught courses in the department for grads and undergrads for a few years. I was a research oceanographer for a few years. And I came to DC as because I applied for a science and technology policy fellowship through AAAS. And it was kind of a program that allowed people with science and engineering backgrounds to um, transition directly into a national policy environment. And I mean, I guess the reason that I did it was because I had actually I was a teacher for five years before I went back to graduate school. And that transition was extremely difficult for me because I went from a job where I had finally, for the first time in my life, found a sense of purpose and a sense of really being useful and making a tangible impact on people's lives in my community to being in this very kind of, you know, inward looking space where I was definitely trying to understand more about the wider world, but I was really focused on my own intellectual development. And it was really kind of a harsh transition. And I felt for many reasons, a real sense of kind of like a loss of usefulness. And I was extremely lucky. I mean, I found a really, really great advisor who wanted to take a chance on, you know, an older student and who saw something in me that maybe I didn't even see myself at the time. And I was supported and nurtured incredibly. But even so, I was lost at the end of my PhD. I just didn't, I, I didn't understand what my purpose was. I didn't understand what I was doing and how I could be happy or have a sense of like a f- useful, you know, fulfilling life. And so the Science Policy Fellowship was an attempt to kind of translate my experience as a scientist into something that let me reconnect again with like society and people and the well-being of 
of people because that's just that's that's the thing that makes me I guess feel good about myself. And so yeah, I, I pursued the policy fellowship um, because I wanted to connect my work to you know society and solutions to problems that people face. The AAAS Science and Technology Policy Fellowship does seem to be one of the most efficient routes into science policy and definitely is a big transformer of people's careers, I think. Uh, Can I ask where you were assigned while you were a fellow? I was hosted by an office in the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency in their Office of Atmospheric Programs. And the office was um, actually the Stratospheric Protection Division which sounds like men in black or something, but it was, it was a really impressive office. What was incredible about the placement was that basically the stratospheric protection division, they're the part of EPA that develops and implements policy to address classes of chemicals that were originally used in applications that had impacts on the global ozone layer. Right. And so it used to be that chemicals used for like you know, industrial purposes like insulation and foam blowing and refrigeration and cooling and fire suppression, things like that were tremendously useful and amazing chemicals, but they were also part of a chemical process that destroyed the ozone layer at the top of our atmosphere. Um, and because that ozone layer over decades was, a, was eroding away, particularly at the poles, that layer is responsible for blocking a lot of the UV radiation that comes from the sun and from space into the atmosphere. And so a thinner eroded ozone layer means more dangerous UV radiation hitting the earth and causing sunburns and skin cancers and other damage to crops and, you know, economic and human damages. And so the world recognized early on in like the 1980s that we had to have international regulatory frameworks to address like this global threat. And so the Stratospheric Protection Division within the U.S. EPA was the office that historically had been developing regulations and other policy solutions to help the United States meet its commitments under international law to regulate like these chemicals. And so I landed in this office at a time where the regulatory frameworks that we use to address these challenges were being modified because a lot of this, the ozone safe chemicals that had been developed over the years were friendly to the ozone layer, but actually ended up being very still potent greenhouse gases. And so there was another kind of process of like innovation and regulation that was required to kind of transition all of these technologies, again, like the refrigeration, cooling, insulation, fumbling, things like that, all of these industrial applications to another second and third generations of chemicals that were both ozone friendly and climate friendly. And that required an adjustment to the international frameworks and specifically a treaty called the Montreal Protocol. And so I just arrived at the EPA at a time where that was essentially outside of climate change, the number one international environmental priority of the U.S. government. In fact, the Obama administration had a climate action plan that had a key component that was focused on um, amending the Montreal Protocol through negotiations um, to kind of encourage, push the world into a transition to kind of climate friendly chemicals in the in all these spaces. And so as a fellow, I was in an office at the EPA that was working really closely with the State Department. And there was a number of projects and programs that required international and interagency coordination to support the U.S. negotiations, negotiations in these international treaty frameworks. Um, and so it was two years of just working really, really hard in a pressure cooker of an environment on lots and lots of different projects and programs to kind of um, help build an enabling environment for international agreement on these issues. And it was 
super intense, really exciting, and just, you know, an opportunity to understand how comprehensive environmental policy that involves all sectors and all countries is developed. Sounds like pretty amazing timing to to be able to be involved in the sort of national priority setting for international policy. I look back and I'm like, I can't believe that I was given this opportunity and I was allowed to be in the room and the incredibly competent, hardworking, talented people that I was around. But it was also an environment where there was a ton of pressure and there was a lot of learning, a lot of failing, and it was intense. And what skills do you think have been most important to your current work on the roundtable? Yeah, thanks for that question. I, I think about this a lot precisely because I think the, the Climate Security Roundtable right now, we're, that's essentially what we're really doing is we're trying to understand the intersections of climate change and environmental change and national security in the context of like a systems understanding of the world, right? Because the reason that climate change and climate outcomes and security outcomes are so difficult to predict is precisely because of the interconnectedness of the world and the fact that like nature and society are like interacting across scales at every level. And these interactions are dynamic and have feedbacks and are so complex that that interconnectedness just produces complexity, right? And so I spend a great deal of time kind of trying to understand like this complexity and it really, really helps to have an understanding um, or a grounding like technically and professionally in like systems approaches. And so I would say that for me, a lot of it came from my technical training as a scientist. I took a huge number of kind of introductory science courses in lots of different areas as an undergrad. I did a master's degree in like paleoclimate research and chemical oceanography that was like very analytically focused. And then I went to, for my PhD, a physical oceanography lab that was really focused in like dynamics and kind of quantitative understandings of like the fluid motions of the earth, of the ocean and the atmosphere. And so there's kind of like my scientific background, I think, had a lot of different elements to it, like working with observations, working with process understanding, working with numerical modeling of these systems, understanding climate variability in the past and the present, forecasting it into the future, you know, working with in situ data as well as like remotely sensed data. And so I became fundamentally kind of at a basic level, like familiar with the mechanistic linkages that connect different parts of the Earth system, like the ocean in one part of the world to the atmosphere in another part of the world or, you know, um, ecosystems in one part of the ocean to environmental change, you know, in other parts of the ocean. And I became familiar and understood kind of the basic nature of like complex systems and under, I just came to like basic insights about like the importance of initial conditions and the nature of, of how complex behaviors arise and what the implications are for predictability. And then when I came out of graduate school and uh, from being a scientist, when I got to DC, all of that was suddenly cast into a space where it was no longer just trying to understand how different parts of the natural systems on the earth interact with each other, but all of a sudden how society comes into play and how human behavior and decision-making and societal systems are part of these kind of complex interactions and really kind of, you know, understanding the importance of social and behavioral science perspectives as well and how they integrate into some of these, you know, questions has been really key. I really appreciate your answer to that question. I want to conclude on asking you what motivates you to do your work now. Yeah, that's a really important question. And it's kind of a tough one, right? Another reason why people get into science policy, I think, is because they understand that like our world like faces like tremendous challenges, right? And a lot of the science that we that's conducted in the world is like publicly funded. So there's a tremendous obligation, I think, on the part of science, which is, you know, supported and valued by society to kind of return that value back. And, you know, and it's like, 
in the world today, it's just, it's kind of like morally impossible, I think, you know, um, to separate the doing of science from kind of the use and the applications of science to like the problems the society faces. And so, you know, for me, like the big questions are like, well, given that we live in a world with enormous ongoing transformations, right? It's not just climate change. It's not just environmental change. Like it's transformations of society and our demography, like urbanization, it's transformations of technology, right? Particularly around like digitalization and AI and machine learning and, and all these things that are happening. These are like historic, like science fiction movie level transformations of like our world and ourselves to the point where we're even like, you know, I don't know if we'll be recognizably human in like 50 years. And so there's a real obligation to try to arrive at solutions or a ways to address these challenges that are humane and grounded in like the human experience. And science is part of that experience. And like the understanding that we've worked so hard to achieve about how the world works, um, that's based on evidence and careful observation and thoughtful examination, that has to be part of the equation. Thank you, Aparva. It's really wonderful to be able to learn more about your work and the way that you found yourself in your role. And you're right, the world of climate science and policy is so vast, but it's so interesting to have an inside look into how you're convening a really dynamic group of you know, federal officials and scientific experts and others to imagine the future of sustainability and security and in this really interesting way. So thank you for sharing with us and really appreciate talking to you today. Yeah, thanks, Megan. I really appreciate the opportunity. If you'd like to learn more about a purpose work with the Climate Security Roundtable, check out the resources in our show notes. Is there something about science policy you'd like to know? Email us at podcast.issues.org or by tagging us on social media using the hashtag sciencepolicyirl. And please subscribe to The Ongoing Transformation wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to our podcast producers, Sydney O'Shaughnessy and Kimberly Quatch, and our audio engineer, Shannon Lynch. I'm Megan Nicholson, Senior Editor at Issues in Science and Technology. Thank you for listening.